This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode we have questions from Tim, Caleb F., Joanna, Emmeline, Sam VR, and Levi. First we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question, and we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. Let's start with our serious questions. Our first two questions come from Tim and Caleb F., and both of them are asking about the parables of Jesus. First, Tim wants to know, how many times did Jesus speak in parables? And then Caleb F. would like to know, did any other people besides Jesus tell parables? Tim, when it comes to how many times Jesus spoke in parables, scholars come up with conflicting numbers to answer the question because there's some uncertainty about what is and is not a parable. When Jesus tells a full-blown story like the parable of the sower or the parable of the weeds in the field, that's easy. But sometimes he just makes a quick analogy and people disagree over whether or not that counts as a parable. This is why you'll see some lists that go as high as a hundred or more. But if we keep it more focused on the obvious examples, then the number of parables preserved for us in Scripture is between 30 and 40. Now, as far as whether other people told parables, Caleb, the answer is yes. The most famous example is Nathan the prophet, who told King David a parable about a man whose only sheep was stolen from him by another who had many sheep already. The king was outraged, and then Nathan revealed that the thief in the story was actually David himself, who had stolen the wife of Uriah. This led to David's conviction of sin and repentance. And now Joanna asks, Who wrote the doxology? Joanna, the author of the doxology that we sing at the end of every service, was a man named Thomas Ken, K-E-N. He was a bishop in the Church of England at the end of the 1600s. In 1674, he wrote a manual of prayers for the use of scholars of Winchester College, which instructed students to, quote, sing the morning and evening hymn in your chamber devoutly, unquote. Now, about 20 years later, that manual was republished, and when they re-released it, they included the text of these hymns, along with another one called the Midnight Hymn. The final verse of each of the three hymns consisted of the words that we now sing as the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I should point out, though, that there are more than one doxologies in our service. Doxology is a word that comes from the Greek words doxa, for glory, and logia, for saying. So any speaking or saying of God's glory is technically a doxology. For example, the Gloria Patri that we say after the assurance of pardon, that's also a doxology. And now it's time for the big question. Our big question this week comes from Emmeline. Let's give her a round of applause. Here's Emmeline's question. 
How did a church service work in the early church? Did they have processes for licensing and ordaining pastors? Well, I love this question, Emmeline, because it helps us focus on something very important about the way we do things at Grace. The liturgy of our worship services and the way that our church is organized and led is modeled on the teaching and examples that we find in Scripture. And we think it's essential that they be that way. Let me start with an analogy. There's a journalist who writes about food named Michael Pollan, and in one of his books, he made a list of rules for eating. One of them said, never eat anything that your great-grandmother wouldn't have recognized as food. That may seem oversimplistic, but in a world full of additives, preservatives, and chemicals, it's not a bad way to think about your diet. Now apply the same logic to the church. Culture changes over time, and it's not wrong to adapt to those changes. Even so, I'd hate to think that if the apostles or members of the early church showed up at one of our services, that it would be so different from theirs that they wouldn't recognize it as worship. To be perfectly honest, I think there are a lot of things that happen in churches today that they wouldn't recognize. In fact, I've been to services where I don't think they would have recognized anything. All that to say, when we ask ourselves what we should do in worship, the first thing to realize is that God does more in the Bible than tell us to worship Him. He also tells us how to worship Him, so we need to follow that example. Now, having said that, the Bible doesn't give us a word-for-word liturgy. Instead, it gives us what we might think of as the parts or the elements of worship. It also gives us a lot of examples of what we might do or say during those parts. We also don't have detailed records of the liturgies of the early church. Scholars find traces of liturgy in the New Testament, and then in the early centuries, there are a few documents that have survived that fill in some of the gaps. What we've done then is take that evidence and use it to inform the way that we do worship today. Now, starting with the very first Lord's Day worship service, the one that Jesus himself led on the Emmaus Road, we center everything around the ministry of word and sacrament. We offer prayers, we make declarations of our faith, we sing praise to God, all things that are part of worship in Scripture. And our liturgy echoes the surviving examples that we have from the early church, not word for word, but then they don't match each other word for word either. The elders of those early congregations seem to have organized the details locally, just as the elders of our churches do. Which brings us to your second question about licensing and ordaining pastors. Did the early church have processes for this similar to ours? Yes, it did. Ordination is just a fancy Latinate term for the act of laying on hands. In the New Testament, this action is what sets someone apart for his ministry. We do the same thing today when we ordain a pastor, an elder, or a deacon, and Paul alludes to the training of men for these roles, so we also require training. Now, in the same way that our liturgy is structured and inspired by what we've been given, but not word for word, our modern processes are structured and inspired by what they did, but they're not perfect copies. The reason is that we don't have enough information to copy them perfectly because God hasn't given it to us. If God had wanted to create a perfect facsimile, he certainly could have given us instruction down to the smallest detail. And if he had, we would follow it. 
But because he hasn't, we recognize that he wants us to use in these areas the wisdom that he has given us and to adapt the parts of worship that he's given us to our circumstances. I'll leave you with the explanation of this process that's given to us in the Westminster Confession. This is at the beginning in chapter 1 in section 6, which says, There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Now this is a great description of what we try to do when it comes to worship. Before we close, let's look at a few fun questions. First, Sam VR asks, will you keep preaching until you're 80? If not, rethink. Well, the answer to your question, Sam, depends on how it's interpreted. One way to read your question is that you're asking me to keep preaching Sunday after Sunday from now until I turn 80 years old. Right now, I'm 52, so it would be 28 years from now that I turn 80, which is actually kind of strange to realize. I thought it would take longer than that. If we say that there are 52 Sundays each year, uh, and you want me to keep going for the next 28 years, that would be 1,456 more sermons. But there's another way to interpret your question. Maybe what you're asking me to do is, next time I start preaching, not to stop until I turn 80. If I do that, then I only have to preach one more sermon. It just has to last 28 years long. Could you even imagine a sermon that long? Just think, if we baptized a newborn baby during that service, by the time we sang the doxology, that baby would be close to 30 years old. Well... However you interpret it, I'm afraid I can't make any guarantees either way. It's not up to me to decide. It's in God's hands. I'll put it this way. Lord willing, I'll keep preaching for as long as he wants. And now Levi has a couple of questions that have a common theme. He wants to know, what would you do if there was a T-Rex on your lawn who was alive? And he also wants to know, what would you do if there was a viper on your bed? Levi, you certainly have a lively idea of what things are like at my house. There are wild, dangerous creatures behind every corner, and I have to stay alert at all times. Fortunately, though, I have some practical uses for both T-Rexes and Vipers, so neither of these scenarios would actually pose a problem. First off, if there was a T-Rex in my yard, I would get him to walk up and down the driveway. We have some ice on the concrete that's too thick for me to get rid of, but a T-Rex could pulverize it easily with his weight. Then I'd invite him to youth group for Wednesday night and tell everyone that we're going to have a dinosaur Q&A with pizza and games. Tell everyone to invite their friends. Now, a viper in the bed isn't too big of a problem, of course, because vipers are pretty narrow and they don't take up a lot of space. Even if they curl up, they're fairly compact. If I were to find one, I would just try to roll over and, and, and not touch him until morning, and then I'd bring him to Sunday school and show him off to all the kids. There are some fun illustrations from the Bible that we could really use a viper for, and Levi, maybe you could help me out by holding my new pet. 
That's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. Never be afraid to ask, and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will stand up to scrutiny. Until next time, keep asking The Big Questions.